One piece of advice I would give is the only wrong way to have this conversation is not to have it. Dory 1, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to episode 67 of Military Veteran Dad. This week is the beginning of Alcohol Awareness Month, and what better topic to bring to you guys than to talk about something that's not really talked about. Maybe you don't struggle with alcohol or drug addiction, but maybe you struggle to have the talk, or maybe your kids are at that age where you don't really know how to approach it. All of those topics are going to be something that we talk about in this episode. Today's episode with Dr. Ben Nordstrom. He is the executive director of responsibilities.org. And his input, his advice, the stories, the conversations, we have some deep narrative. We go into some areas that we haven't talked about on the podcast in real any depth. And I am positive if any portion of this touches your life with alcohol addiction, drug addiction, whether you grew up with a family that suffered from these, whether you worry about the feeling of carrying this the pattern on with your kids, whatever you feel on those topics, there's, I'm positive there will be a connection in this episode to help you feel something that maybe you haven't felt or you haven't been given the perspective on it to understand how you can move forward. It's just a great episode. And there are many resources that we talk about in this episode. And if you want to check them out, go ahead and go into the show notes of this episode. And we will be right there with the links. We got the car screening assessment tool we talked about. We got the ask, listen, learn program that he talks about. All the socials that he talks about are also in the links. The website for responsibility.org is there. And also, if you want to connect with Dr. Ben Dorsham, we also included his LinkedIn handle. We talk about so many different things. We go into how the curiosity of kids leads to them understanding one way or another an idea or a view of the world when it comes to alcohol and drugs. We talk about the patterns of your behavior and how they'll repeat within your kids if you don't understand how they are repeating within you and understanding how they're setting an example, whether you want to be that the example be set is a different story. Letting your kids drink in your presence, is that good or bad? That's a hot topic. I often hear it both ways. I see it both ways. I grew up seeing it both ways. And so I was very interested to see what he thought was his answer was. So stay tuned for his answer. It's about three quarters of the way through. And I'm sure that answer will help even maybe point out some things in your own life that where you made a left turn instead of a right turn instead of going straight, whatever it may be, I'm positive this episode will give you a nice, solid piece of wisdom when it comes to this topic. And as Dr. Ben Norrisham says, the only wrong way to deal with this is by not having the conversation. And that was so brilliant piece of advice, and he drops it right at the end. It just wrapped up the entire part of this episode that only way you can mess this up is by not having it. Not having it is a way that you create these ripples that you don't control. You don't have any idea how they're happening out there. But you need to have these conversations with your kids. So without further ado, let's talk with Dr. Ben Dorbstrom. Welcome to the show, Ben. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. 
I'm excited. I never interviewed a Ben before, so this will be fun having two Bens <laughs> in the same video conference here. Well, hopefully it'll be clear to everybody which one of us is speaking. So, <laughs> yeah, hope our, our voice is enough distinction. Go ahead and tell a little bit everybody about your background, what you do today, and a little bit about your family, what your family looks like right now. Sure. So, um, I am the executive director of responsibility.org. And we are uh, an independent nonprofit that is funded by some leading members of the Distilled Spirits producer community. And our mission is really to prevent uh, alcohol-related harm in society. Um, there are kind of three big components to the mission that we, uh, that we have. The first is to eliminate underage drinking. Uh, the second is to eliminate drunk driving and working with some partners to eliminate all forms of impaired driving, including drugged driving. Um, and the third big thing that we do is promote responsible drinking among uh, adults who, who choose to drink. Um, our company's been around since 1991, um, and uh, we uh, have made tremendous uh, progress in a number of these, these components, but obviously we, we have a, a long ways to go uh, as a society to eliminate alcohol-related harm. Um, my personal background is that I'm an addiction psychiatrist uh, by training. Um, I also have studied criminology and uh, used to be in academics and then a number of years ago kind of transferred into the nonprofit world. Um, and uh, about a year ago came on board with responsibility.org and I'm really excited to be here because it's, you know, for the first time in my career, an opportunity to prevent uh, alcohol related problems from happening as opposed to reacting to them once they've already taken root. Um, in addition to, to this, I'm also a, a psychiatrist with the U.S. Army Reserve. Um, I've had the opportunity to deploy a couple of times. As a matter of fact, one was just this past year. Um, had the uh, kind of unusual experience of having to call an employer before I even started uh, to let them know that uh, I had orders to deploy, <laughs> um, but they were extremely supportive of it, thank God. Um, like they're legally like, required to, though, as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's legally required, and then there's enthusiastic Making your life support. Harder than it has to be. Yeah, I was I was lucky to be met with enthusiastic support, um, and I know not everybody is in that in that uh, camp. So I, I know how lucky I am. Um, in terms of my family, uh, I've uh, been married now for 23 years this summer, and uh, we have uh, two daughters. Uh, one is a, a, a high school senior and the other is a college sophomore. And they're both at home because of COVID-19 right now. So we're uh, kind of back to the future in, in terms of uh, all living under one roof. And, and good and bad, because you probably were just getting ready for the empty nest phase. And now you're, you're, you're uh, they came back home for the good reasons versus like rubber banding back to your basement because they couldn't figure out how to boot up their their operating system for their life. <laughs> you know, we're trying to look at this as sort of a, a great opportunity to have one last hoorah as a family. Um, and then probably at the end of it, everyone's going to be really glad uh, to move on to the next phase. So mm -hmm. they'll be like, OK, I'm really excited to grow up now. <laughs> Exactly. Any trepidation about going to college is going to be uh, overwhelmed by the relief of finally being able to get out of the house. So, is your son committed to go to college? Uh, two daughters. Yes, both of two them. Two daughters. Yep. Got it. Do they know what they're going to do? 
Uh, no, not really, not quite yet. Um, so it'll be, a, I'm sure, an interesting process to watch unfold as they as they figure that all out. So as as you wrote off there, or, or spoke about a lot of different uh, things that you're good at, a lot of them all go on the idea around the mind. And I'd be curious to ask, like, what sparked your curiosity of the mind when you first were growing up? So, um, so I grew up in a family full of doctors. My, my grandfather was a surgeon. My dad's a gastroenterologist. We've got all kinds of doctors, nurses, physical therapists, uh, dentists all over my family. And, and the joke growing up was that uh, my parents raised us to believe that we could grow up to be any kind of doctor we wanted. <laughs> and uh, there are four boys in my family and three of us ended up in medicine. Um, so, you know, the, the programming worked. So I, I was interested in medicine from a, a young age because, you know, so many people in my family were in it. Um, my uh, the family friends that we had around were all in medicine as well. Uh, they were all really stimulated by their work. When they'd get together, they'd talk cases. I always liked listening in on it. Um, and so, you know, pretty early on decided I was interested in pursuing medicine, but I thought I was going to do emergency medicine or something along those lines. But when I got to medical school, um, I was completely surprised by the fact that I was just taken by psychiatry, um, uh, was getting up early to go into the, to the hospital when I was on the rotation, you know, reading through the, the notes of the people who came in overnight to see, uh, which one uh, I should be able to work with and was just really excited about the whole thing. And it, it took me a while to uh, realize that this would be a good career for me uh, because it would never feel like work. You know, it was, uh, it was interesting and stimulating enough that uh, I looked forward to doing the reading and I looked forward to studying. And so it just kind of um, was surprised by how much I loved it. And, uh, had great mentorship, thankfully, at my medical school, and uh, you know made that decision and kind of later in the than a lot of people do in terms of deciding what career they want. Um, but I'm very, very grateful uh, for the fact that I came to that conclusion, and I've never regretted it for a day of my life. That's good that you identified that in the very beginning. What brought you to the army through that? If you already knew kind of what you were, what intrinsically wanted, what part in the army was. Uh your curiosity pulled towards? So my grandfather was actually a surgeon with the 10th Mountain Division in World War II. Um, and so when uh, we would uh, go to their lake place up in northern Wisconsin, there's always a 10th Mountain flag flying. Um, he never really talked about his specific experiences, like a lot of World War II vets. You know, he played that very close to his uh, vest. But um, he clearly took a lot of pride in uh, his service. And so I was interested in, in that my whole life. But um, after the wars started uh, um, in, in 2001, and then later on um, with Iraq, there was a critical wartime shortage of psychiatrists. And I felt strongly called to uh, bring whatever I had to bear to, to help uh, our, our troops in the field. And so when I was done with my training and education, I, um, I, I signed up. And uh, another one of those decisions, I've never been sorry I did it. You know, I've mm -hmm. been very glad to have the opportunity to contribute in whatever way I can. 
that's really cool. And the part about responsibility.org that uh, is, I don't know if everybody knows about it, of the organization, but, and especially in the military, there's not a lot of responsible drinking. It's almost a, very much of a college culture of, of responsible drinking. And I remember in Okinawa, so I was there and the legal drinking age in like 2004 was still 21. And then just like overnight, the, within a week or whatever the process was, but they, they lowered it to 18. And you just essentially cut three years off of everybody's drinking age and everybody just goes crazy because you think you have three years to wait. And all of a sudden you were auto- automatically allowed to drink and it's not something that's talked a lot about, or even I mean, it's talked about in like, don't do something stupid type narrative that that's used the language that military leaders would use. Like, don't do something stupid this weekend, but it's not really talked about in like, why do you want to be responsible? Like that's the part that I don't know if a lot of the conversations, like why do you want to choose responsibility over stupidity? Is that something you find that, that why to be responsible is something that isn't talked about? Absolutely. And and look, I you could not have timed this better because April is Alcohol Responsibility Month. And so, you know, we're going to be pushing out some materials and some messaging and things around this, this topic because there's clearly something missing in the national discourse when it comes to responsible drinking. You know, and the uh, a real, I think, key problem is what responsible drinking is, is going to be very different from person to person. So if you go to the scientific literature and you try to read up on what responsible drinking is, one of the things that you'll figure out pretty quickly is that there's no agreed upon standard. There is no agreed upon definition. Um, And it's one of those things where um, kind of to your point where the message is don't do anything stupid. You know, it's kind of like you'll, you'll know irresponsibility when you see it. Um, and I don't think that that's uh, sufficient guidance for a lot of people, because I think a lot of people do want to do the, the right thing and they want to do the smart thing. Um, but there's not really, uh, been a, a good national discussion about what that means or how do we define the parameters. And it probably is tied to, as you were explaining there, I was just thinking about that a lot of people don't fully accept responsibility for a lot of things in their own life. They don't, they, they, there's this idea that you're responsible for your own life isn't something that everybody is is booted up with as they enter the world that that there's just certain things that are taken care of for you and you don't have to own the quality of your life and the choices you make actually will determine the quality of life you have in the future so that threat of responsibility is almost woven in every category except in this category of alcohol it can potentially kill people Absolutely. If you're not responsible to get a job, you can still watch Netflix and you're not going to die. You may not have food on the table in a couple of weeks, but you're not going to die from that responsibility choice or not accepting it. But in this case, if you don't accept the responsible drinking, your actions can literally take the life of someone else. Yeah, and you're absolutely right, Um, especially when we talk about people uh, drinking and getting behind the wheel of a car. You know, it's one thing to accept risk for one's self and it's something completely different to create risk for other people you know mm-hmm. and so you know when we when we think about responsibility it's not just being willing to accept the consequences of your decisions or your actions but there should be a, a broader discussion where we talk about um, what what does what can you do upstream of a bad event to prevent a bad event from happening in the first place yeah. Alcohol is almost like the end case scenario. Like that is something that 
it's almost like if you think of a river and you start drinking out of a river that's you test it and it's toxic well it's probably toxic from events that are four or five miles upstream from maybe someone illegally dumping or something all of those things flow down river and whatever point you're drinking out of that river you're going to be affected by those decisions way upstream and this is one of those that's connected to parenting where you're like even something as simple uh, i've always liked my kids are still young so i haven't had a chance to instill this but if you give your kids a cell phone, make them sign a real contract between you and, and them about what your responsibility is with this phone, because those little baby steps of responsibility and taking ownership for what you've given them, that's the thread. That's the little seed that grows into something that, you know what, I've had enough to drink tonight. I'm done. Like that is where those seeds are planted. Yeah. And, and you know, to your point about your kids being young, what I would say is it's never really too early to start conversations with them about these topics and even around, around alcohol, you know, because little kids are curious about it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they, uh, they notice what you're do doing. They're trying to learn more about their environment all the time. I always, I think about kids as little biological supercomputers that are just going around siphoning up information mm -hmm. to try to make their world more uh, more predictable. You know, they're, they're trying to understand it better so that they can, it, they know they can't have control, but they can at least be able to predict what's coming. And so they're, they're paying so much attention to everything that we do. And especially in times like this, where we can't get away from each other, where we're all stuck under the same roof, you know, they're paying a lot of attention. And so when they notice that their parent is having a drink um, and they want some or they are expressing curiosity about it there's a there's an opportunity there to engage them and to ha start a discussion with them uh, around what you're doing and why it's appropriate for adults but not it's, it's not appropriate for kids and you, you know when you start those conversations when they're really young it, it makes it so that then when they're 13 14 15 16 years old there's some predicate for it there's there's some uh, behavioral repertoire has been established where there's this open channel of communication. So, you know, it's never really too early to start talking about these things because we, we know and what the research just clearly, clearly shows is that the number one determinant about a kid's drinking behavior comes from their parents, that their parents are the number one influence, you know, and so um, kids can't read your mind. Um, so you got to kind of talk to them about what your values are, what your expectations are. And if you're not are. talking, they're watching your actions like you exactly, do. Exactly. You know? And so it, there's this, there's always an opportunity to, to start these. And, and of course, you know, you're going to talk to a kid at an age appropriate level. You know, you're not going to talk to a four-year-old about ethanol and, and, you know, how, what a standard drink is or anything like that. But you can say this is something for adults and it's not good for kids because it's not good for your brain or your body when you're little. Your, your brain and your body have to be developed before it's okay to, mm -hmm. to use this, you know? And so there, there's, there's ways to start that conversation early on and then continue it as they develop. As they get more sophisticated, the conversation can get more nuanced. And something we haven't pitched in or talked about yet, but I think it's tied right to this topic, is the emotional behavior connected to drinking. And so a lot of parents connect their drinking to sadness or to as a medication for what they're not feeling in their life. And something with my kids being as young there, one thing I do do with them is I'm always coaching them about their emotions. And so like we've had a bad day and maybe one of them made a bad decision in the morning and oftentimes that'll put them in the mood and they'll just be a consequence or a river that keeps flowing throughout the rest of the day based on that early decision that she made that just was flowing down. 
And so when you're talking, when I'm talking to say my daughter about like, you made this decision very early on and that just kind of continued to flow. You can have a better way to handle those emotions and all those different things. So I use emotions kind of as a way, like you're responsible for how you feel and then how you project those emotions onto others. You're responsible for how you make other people feel because you didn't manage what you felt properly. Like it's okay to feel, but if you actually intentionally hurt someone, you're responsible for how you made them feel and you need to care. And like, that's another seed that kind of grows. And as you carry that forward like that, and even you think about like, if you see a, a parent sad and they, they're drinking, they're instantly going to connect that this, this is, and it, there's lots of teenage emotions of feeling sad. It's like an unregulated, it's, it's, they're figuring out who they are in a very time where their body's changing, their social structure's changing, their, their pressures of being adult is increasing. And if you already have these coping mechanisms, they're going to copy it if you don't necessarily talk to them or maybe even aware of what you're actually doing in your own life to, to use alcohol. I could not agree more emphatically. All right. That I think that you've put your finger on a, a really key part of the discussion that's been missing when we talk about responsibility with alcohol. And that's, there's a lot of focus on how much people drink or over what period of time people drink. Um, and that is important. That's undeniably important. But if we focus on that and we don't talk about two other big components, which is your mindset going into drinking and then the setting that you're drinking in, you miss the opportunity to recognize how much control you have over a situation. And, you know, when you think about your mindset, um, you know, including your mood, including what are your expectations from drinking? What is alcohol going to do to you and for you? And thinking about what your intentions are, um, you know, that th those are really important things for us all to bear in mind. And so when you talk about people drinking when they're sad, you know, kids, kids will pick up on that, you know, and, and it's again, with alcohol responsibility month uh, coming up next week uh, in, in April, you know, what we're trying to do, especially in this time is get the word out that drinking is not a coping mechanism. Alcohol mm -hmm. is not a coping strategy and it shouldn't be used as one. Um, and, and kids, uh, kids will know if you're drinking from a negative place or if you're drinking from a positive place. They can feel that energy. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's that, that old saying that, uh, you know, even a dog knows the difference between uh, being tripped over and being kicked. Um, <laughs> I haven't heard that one. I like that. <laughs> kids, kids know if, if you're having a drink at the end of the day, uh, because uh, you're trying to, you know, enjoy a meal or that you're spending time out on the patio with your spouse while we're all, you know, practicing social distancing. They can tell the difference between that where you're using it in this positive way or if you're using it to sort of manage stress, frustration, anger, sadness, whatever it is. Because the, the problem with that is the, the drinking can become really negatively reinforcing, right? If the drink Drinking uh, can temporarily make a bad feeling go away, and it would only do that temporarily. That increases the chance that you're going to repeat that behavior. Um, and there's an opportunity cost there that when you avoid dealing with the source of that sadness, the source of that frustration, or finding a, uh, an adaptive coping mechanism, it's just people can start to wear sort of a behavioral groove into their life and then create a, a, a pattern of behavior that can have really dire and negative consequences later on, you know? And so it, it's important for kids to recognize early on 
that drinking is not, a, it's not a coping mechanism. It's an avoidance mm -hmm. mechanism. It's ineffective um, and doesn't lead anywhere good. And that uh, drinking uh, for positive reasons is the kind of thing that parents can model in addition to being careful about how much they drink and the setting that they're drinking in. Yeah. And I think what, if you connect it to emotions as well, that when you're doing it for the negative state, you're generally doing it to distance yourself from the people you care about. Like you want, it, it's a way to, to numb yourself to the feelings or the isolation or whatever feeling you're not trying to feel. And your kids will feel that, that it's actually something that pulls you away. And the further you get pulled away, the less present you can be and the less present you can be the more that your kid's desire to feel love almost increases. And I haven't put this brilliant thought together, but if you're like in the beginning of this podcast, I preached and still do that your kids spell love T-I-M-E and your presence, your time is one thing that they will quantify how much you love them. And if you're using alcohol to distance yourself from that feeling, then at the same time, you're also de depleting the, the bank account of their love tank. And if they don't feel love, this is what would also then cataclysmically go into something that uh, there was a book by Dr. Meg Meeker, Strong Father, Strong Daughter, is that just hugging your daughter and making her feel her father's love allows her to be more confident woman when she goes into the world and she'll, she'll start dating uh, later. She'll have the desire for sex later because she had that physical connection from her father. And if you're a dad listening to this, and you're using alcohol to cope with something, and you have a daughter, she needs to know what your, what your love feels like. And if you're numbing whatever you're trying to numb, she's not able to feel that. And that is going to have a ripple effect that you won't be able to control. And the day you can, you're going to be like, it's already too late. And it all can start with just from that numbing yourself from that feeling that you were talking about. Yeah. And, it, you know, and I think that especially when we talk about numbing uh, with the military audience, you know, we know that that can be one of the one of the things that drives alcohol use um, is trying to numb those negative feelings. And, you know, look, it's it's understandable um, and it's temporarily effective, um, but it's. It's not, it, it's not something that is going to produce the real results that people are looking for ultimately. And so, you know, what we would encourage people is if you're having those negative feelings and whether it's coming from uh, a psychiatric condition uh, like depression or some form of anxiety disorder or a reaction to stress, there are ways of managing that that are, are adaptive and effective and will get you feeling back to normal. Um, whereas alcohol, it's just like shooting Novocaine into a cut. It doesn't make the cut heal up. You know, as a matter of fact, it's going to keep it open longer. And alcohol can be counterproductive when it comes to these things because it's working on your brain and it's affecting your, the chemistry in your brain if you're drinking heavily um, and can exacerbate the problem. And so what we really want is for people to be thinking about when they're choosing to drink, to be mindful of the fact that it's, it, of course, it's fine to take a drink. It's legal. It's been a part of our culture for thousands of years. You know, it's of course it's okay to, to to take a drink, but they just have to really be thinking, not just about how much they're drinking, but why are they drinking, and and what do they expect to come of it. And make sure that those things all are aligned in a positive direction, so that they can get the the effect that they're looking for. Um, without it having a, a huge cost to their lives or their family or their community. 
I often hear, so I've been in dad groups for a long time now, and there's always dads in there that were heavily drinking, not into a point where like, like maybe a bottle a day type where they were complete like alcoholics, but they used alcohol quite often. And they would always kind of wake up with that hangover and that numbing feeling and, and would just feel off the rest of the day. And they would always, at the, when, they, when they took away the bottle, they would always be like, I'm just more present with my kids. And like even something that simple awareness, like you can often think you don't have a problem. Maybe you think you're just social drinking on Friday with some friends and, and maybe you think it's perfectly okay and acceptable. But then when you remove it and then you kind of can do that comparison, that's really where you can see the analysis. Am I really social drinking or am I really living a lifestyle that's it's taking me away from the most valuable time, which is time with my kids? Like every Saturday that you're hungover is one less Saturday they're going to be there before they leave the house. And something I'm sure you're reflecting on is the kids are back home temporarily and getting ready to leave that uh, every one of those Saturdays count. And every one of those summers count, like you only have 18 summers with your kids and how you show up in their lives, whether you're sober or not, like those are going to determine the quality of the adults that you help put into the world. Absolutely. When Absolutely. you think of, when you think about the military aspect, what is responsibility.org success? What, what, what are the programs out there that you've worked with the military on, or what is, what are some of the things the military has within their resources that are connected to this? So we're, uh, we've just kind of recently started um, reaching out into uh, veterans affairs and, and, and veteran matters. Um, the place where we're sort of stepping into this is in Texas because they're, they have the highest number of, of uh, military veterans in the country um, and just in terms of raw numbers. And, uh, you know, so we, we've been working um, with various groups down there to uh, see how we can be how we can be helpful um, in terms of getting a responsibility message out, and in terms of some of the uh, other projects and programs that we've worked with partners on. So, um, one of the key ones is uh, a screener called Cars. It's a screening and assessment tool. It's uh, really more under our uh, drunk driving um, mission or submission. And what Cars does is it it, it helps. Uh, identify whether there are unmet alcohol, drug, or mental uh, health challenges that a person needs um, to be addressed in order to uh, really reduce the likelihood that they're going to uh, be rearrested for DWI. So, and it was uh, studied um, using DWI populations so that uh, we know that it's, it's got validity for that group. And it's a, uh, a, uh, uh, tool that was really designed uh, by some partners that we have at Harvard Medical School at the Cambridge Health Alliance. Um, and it's available for free um, and can really be integrated into uh, a treatment court setting. So for example, veterans courts and the number one charge in uh, most veterans courts that uh, vets are being faced with is DWI. And so what we want is for people to use a screening and assessment tool such as CARS to help make sure that uh, if there is an underlying cause that's driving the likelihood of this person driving under the influence, that those needs can be identified and then addressed. And, and it's, that's a good point. And as a I don't know, let's say a normal person looking through this lens of alcoholism that doesn't really fully understand it because he hasn't had to deal with it or 
that it closed his life. It's always hard for me to fathom when you read in the paper, like this person was registered for their seventh DWI. And like the mind, like to me, if I were to get a DWI, I would just be cataclysmic. I would just be in devastation. Like I would be feel like a failure. And the idea that I could do it twice would just blow my mind. But yet there's people out there that are in a completely different state. Is there other things that are predictors of people that are repeat DWI that you could talk well, about? Certainly uh, a mental illness that we know that people with, um, with mental health conditions are, are overrepresented in the, in the recidivist population. And that kind of makes sense because we know just on the, the, the treatment of alcoholism or other uh, drug abuse issues. We know that if there's an underlying cause and people are trying to self-medicate with the, with some sort of substance, that it's it's really hard for that behavior to change until you treat the uh, the psychiatric condition that's that's really at the root of it. You know, mm-hmm. and so it, it's it is critically important to get those things addressed. And something that you've as you probably has grown up through your psychological or psychology area is I've always, I've heard women on other podcasts and other uh, like nutritionists like talk a lot about like, you can go get a prescription for depression and they'll never ask you what your diet is daily or what, how long are you sleeping at night? And so I think that's something else within the narrative that like the mental health is almost beaten down with a bad nail because it, it's not always a pill. It's an entire holistic approach to your life kind of. And Maybe you don't have a depression, but maybe you're just operating on four hours of sleep because you're overworked and you're just trying to provide and you use alcohol as an escapism. But like you, like most doctors I've heard said, like they don't get trained in nutrition. They just get trained that it's it's medicine and pills that will ultimately cure the disease. And if there's not a pill, then they ultimately don't understand how to fix it. Do you see that within the narrative? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think that what you're you're putting your finger on is the distinction between mental health and mental wellness. You know, that if we think about specific psychiatric conditions, you're talking about something that's pretty far down the path relative to um, just being mentally well and being in balance and, and doing all of those sort of affirmative actions that people can undertake to to stay optimally fit. You know, it, it would be the distinction between um, somebody who is exercising and working with an athletic trainer as opposed to somebody who's uh, working with a physical therapist in rehab. You know, that that one is about optimizing function and the other is about treating a, a, a medical condition of some sort. Um, and that I, more and more, um, I think people are recognizing that good mental health is really far upstream into that mental wellness space where we're talking about resiliency, having a lot of good coping strategies available um, that are well-practiced and can be deployed under a lot of different conditions um, so that people can maintain uh, balance and um, hopefully prevent certain uh, mental health challenges like depression or anxiety conditions from manifesting in their lives. Do you, I, I imagine what the statistics would also show that a lot of alcoholism and drunk driving is correlated to the amount of opportunity they have in their life. And I think this is something that veterans fall harder to because when we transition out, we can often feel like the opportunity just dried up in our life and that there is no next step for us to take. And so we almost want to escape 
from the inevitable that is maybe that our life isn't worth living, that we don't want to come to that conclusion. So we use alcohol to numb. And I'm sure even on the civilian side that the amount of opportunity you have in your life can directly correlate to the amount of hope in your life. And if you're hopeful for the future, then you can do a lot now. But if you're not hopeful that your life has a lot of opportunity, alcohol is one of the most widely available things to treat that <laughs> in a bad way because it, it just it numbs that realism or maybe there's some big action you need to take to change your opportunity in your life. And alcohol can just keep you in neutral, spinning your wheels, and you'll never really know why until you yeah. recognize yeah. that this is the one thing holding me back. So th there's an expression um, from Finland that's a little crude, but it, it's effective. Um, and that it's, it's like pissing on your, yourself to warm up. You know, uh, it, you'll warm up for a second, but then you're going to be colder than you were in the first place, you know. And so using alcohol as a coping strategy, temporarily it's effective. It's understandable for why people use it. But they got to understand when you play the tape on that, it's just not going to advance your cause. It's not going to help you get where you're trying to go if you're using it from that negative space. Is there a story that you could share with us maybe of something that really hit you hard as a person within this field that continues to feel your why that you could share without any issues or ambiguity of names or anything like that? I mean, there are... I mean, it's, there's almost too many of them, you know, and it'd be hard to, to, to pick just one, but the, um, you know, just, I think the kind of modal case it would be somebody, you know, we can talk about it, uh, on the veteran side, um, people coming back and, it, you know, I'm a reservist, uh, so when you, you see people come back from deployments, um, and they're having that a hard time making that shift between from operating in a military culture to now having to shift into a civilian culture um, to be uh, moving at uh, a military op tempo to then a civilian op tempo and to have that clear sense of mission and purpose that comes in military settings to then trying to find that same mission and purpose in a civilian setting with uh, very clear roles and jobs in a military setting to coming back into a civilian setting where your family had to figure out a way to keep the wheels turning and the trains running on schedule in your absence. And then you come home and you've got to try to reintegrate yourself into that. And then people starting to drink from the challenges that come with all of that. And if you add in traumatic stress, it's of course, a, that that's a, a bit of a force multiplier when it, when it comes to this, but it doesn't even, need to be there you know that this there's no easy deployment right i mean because these things are true in any deployment when people come back they still have to deal with these issues and then people start to if they start to drink and then if they're not addressing these concerns the problems that come with that avoidance behavior start piling up and then you start having these negative consequences but that behavioral groove has gotten worn into their lives in such a way that it's it's hard for them to see over the edge of that and to change their behavior and so then you can find these people who have nothing but the best intentions and um have uh, uh not done anything quote unquote wrong um are really suffering as a result and so uh, and it, it is 
important that they know that help is out, out there and that help is effective. Um, and but it, it does involve um, taking that step of, of reaching out or allows allowing somebody to reach out to you. Got it. You inspired a, a question that I'm not sure where you're going to land on this one. So and often I think, I don't know whether it's false or not, what is it, but it's often common where a parent will tell themselves, as long as my kid is drinking within my presence, it's okay. And it's almost like socially, maybe it's a family party and they have a bar in the basement and they're okay doing all of that within the presence of being in mom and dad. Is there research to say that that is a better way or does that actually just fuel it when it's, when, when they're outside your house that you lose control over it? Is that like a false narrative? Parents tell themselves that that it's okay to do it that way. Yes, basically. I mean, it's, and it's tricky because no parent appreciates unsolicited parenting advice, you know, and, and people, especially around that one, especially around it's this, probably, but, it would touch part portion of their own life. Of why but they yeah, it, it, it is clear that that is a mixed message at best. Um, because they're hearing one thing, uh, uh, you know, you shouldn't drink, uh, uh, but then they're getting this unless, and that opens the door a crack. And we know what kids do when you open the door a crack. They push. Um, you know, and it, we also know that, uh, like I said earlier, that parents are such a, a huge influence, more than peers, certainly more than the media, more than anything like that. They're looking to get their cues from the parent and in and so you have this opportunity as a parent to, to send this unambiguous message that there's nothing wrong with drinking when you're old enough you know that you really do need the concrete to harden in terms of your neurochemistry and your physiology um, and then it's okay to do it as long as you're drinking at safe levels and in safe places and you're you know with the from a, the right headspace you know but um, to your earlier point, you know, when, uh, if you all of a sudden throw the doors open at 18, um, you know, the concrete hasn't had that chance to really season. Yeah, and, and there's a reason why the drinking age was moved to 21. It's because, you know, those decisions, good decisions are easier to make when your brain's done developing. And it, I mean, frankly, it's not done at 21 either, but you know, it's, it's considerably more so than, at, than at 18. Um, and, and so the, that's where it's important to have those discussions with kids all through their life at these different stages. And, you know, if parents are um, curious about how to have those conversations, we have a ton of resources on our website um, about having those conversations at different age groups and at responsibility.org. And I'd encourage your listeners to, to, to check it out if they're looking for some guidance on how to have those those conversations. So you've only been at responsibility.org for a year. I'd have to imagine when you first started getting into this space, you reflected on your own parenting and saw gaps in how you were talking about this. Is there anything that you could share from a, a mistake that you maybe made that you first started to understand like, man, I, I, I did okay, but maybe I could have done better in your own parenting? Uh, oh my God. I, I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> So many different ways. I mean, you know, that's the, that's always the thing is you, you your mistakes are so much clearer in hindsight. I mean, I, I work for the that, organization though. So now you're even like, you're more trained in the, the methodology, the reason. Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely. Um, you know, we we did try to have conversations with our kids uh, around um, uh, around drinking and around uh, drug use. Just I was an addiction psychiatrist. We mostly lived in big cities, um, you know, and we would go out and we'd see you know, homeless people, um, and and is a kind of an exercise to help increase situational awareness. You know, they'd, they'd say, oh, can I go climb that tree? And there'd be a guy passed out underneath it. And we'd start talking about, okay, well, do you think that that guy over there is, uh, you think he's just a dude taking a nap? Or do you think that he's passed out from substance use? You know, and so we would, we would try to talk about that and tie that to the idea of good decisions and bad decisions around substance use. But we really did uh, miss the opportunity to just talk about what, what we, my wife is a lifetime non-drinker. She's just not interested in it, but I missed the opportunity to kind of talk about when I would have a drink about why I was having a drink or when I wasn't having a drink to talk about why I wasn't having a drink because, you know, I wouldn't drink if I was stressed out. And there was an opportunity for me to tell my kid, to point that out that, Oh, tonight I'm not having a drink because I don't drink when I'm frustrated. I don't drink when I'm angry uh, because I just know that that's not a path I want to start down at all. You know, I only uh, would drink and have a beer with dinner or a cocktail or, or what have you um, when um, I was, you know, had specific food that it paired well with or I was just going to relax and watch a movie or something like that. And I, so I never talked about my intentions and I, and, I, and I should have done that. If I had to do over again, I would. And I don't know what you guys call this, but you got you just hit me on something I could wrap up what you were just talking about there. Situational coaching sounds like the most effective way to talk about it. And don't say that it's good, bad, or even the the bank brain chemistry is is one thing, but most kids aren't gonna really care, which is probably why they don't care now, even if they know that it's bad for their brain. But talking about as a parent about the situations and what you paired there with the situations was the emotions that this is, I don't do this when I feel X and I don't do this when I feel Y, but then if I feel this, that's okay. Like that situational coaching is almost like giving them the wisdom that they need because when they're up against that peer pressure or friend, the brain chemistry is going to be a hard one to really hold on to. Like you're going to most likely cave under that peer pressure. But if you understand, if you admire your father and who he was and the advice of situational coaching of, he was this man and I admire him and he didn't do it in this particular case. Then it's a case of like integrity that if I might admire my father's integrity, I want to model that integrity and then I'll make the right choice. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that ties in exactly what you were saying earlier about hugging your kids and having those sorts of experiences really being the building blocks of self-esteem mm-hmm. that, that like that they're, they're little supercomputers and they're siphoning them up this these different pieces of data and that what what gets assembled into their sense of self and so the more good pieces of data that you can give them that help them assemble a, a resilient and uh and tough sense of self the better off they're going to be in every circumstance mm-hmm. and this is something that i talk about all the time on the podcast about fatherhoods and, and dad and like so many things come from dad that the the experience the wisdom the the shepherding through life like your dad is often that person 
And if you're not part of your kid's life, someone else will be this person, whether it be the first boyfriend that they have, or maybe they make it up as they go. Maybe it's the stuff they see on TV and Netflix. And all of that stuff is selling the wrong kind of fatherhood of what a good adult will look like when they grow up. And this is why I think just getting dads to come back home to their family, which is why I have, that's why the mission is to bring every dad home. Because when you come home as a father, your impact in so many areas can transform a child's life. And you'll never really know until the pieces are put together on the Picasso. But every little stroke is, is part of that master, that master uh, painting. And you just have to trust that your presence is enough in those moments and your words and your wisdom and your, your example. Like that's the gift of fatherhood that you get to lead by. And it's the best kind of leadership and training for leadership at home is the best way to train for leadership at work because at work, people most likely will listen to you, but at home you got to get your kids to do things they don't want to do. And so learning how to set the example, have a conversation, coach them through all that. Like that's the magic of fatherhood that I, I love doing. I love talking about it and I love inspiring other dads with that same kind of energy. And it's what you're talking with responsibility, teaching them to be responsible when they grow up. Like, God, that's like the best gift you could give a kid in 2020 because of just the nature of where we are, the nature of what kids accept as a responsibility, the nature of what people expect out of life automatically. Like life doesn't come to you in a silver platter. You got to make it and it comes from being responsible. And did you get up on time every day? And did you have that lazy day where nothing got done? Well, that was one less day you got to, to make your opportunity so you can move out of the basement. All of that happens by becoming responsible. It's not just one narrative around alcohol. It's like, how do you become responsible for your life? And as you said, it comes from those little seeds that you plant when the kids are growing up of what responsible parenting and adulthood looks like. Absolutely. I think you said that beautifully. Well, as we wrap up this interview, I've, I've enjoyed this. We haven't really dove into this topic, and it's going to be a topic that I know will hit a few dads hard because it can be some hard truths that maybe people haven't been willing to acknowledge. But then hopefully it also gives some wisdom for the dads looking to have this conversation. I know I got out of some out of it for when I have to have that and what I can do today. What's a parting piece of advice you want to leave for a military dad out there listening to this that you want to be the, the nugget that they take away if they only can take away one thing? I know it's kind of hard, but. The one piece of advice I would give is the only wrong way to have this conversation is not to have it. Ooh, I love that. That, that, that was a mic drop moment oh, right there. <laughs> well, I just, I think so many times people think about these sort of big conversations as something where they've got to have everything scripted out and they have to have a battle plan with all kinds of they have read five books. Well, they say, yeah, if, if they say this, then I'm going to say that. And if they say, you know, uh, X, I'm going to say Y. It doesn't have to be that scripted. As a matter of fact, that can get in the way of it just being authentic and in the moment. Um, like I said, our, our website, responsibility.org, has got materials to help people kind of guide their way through this if, if, if they want to use them. But what we'd encourage is just embrace the messiness of it, seize the opportunity, um, and just start the conversation early on so that it's never this big, momentous conversation later. You know, and that what you want to do is just have a continuum of conversations that get more sophisticated and more nuanced as the kid gets older and better able to understand it. Is there any challenge going on for the month of April that parents can uh, take part in, or is there any type of social media campaign that you guys are running? Well, it is, it is um, uh, 
alcohol responsibility month. And so we're going to be pushing out a lot of things with that hashtag. Um, encourage them to follow us um, on uh, Twitter. We're at GoFAR, F-A-A-R. Our technical name is the Foundation for Advancing Alcohol Responsibility. But for obvious reasons, we, we kind of go by responsibility.org. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of a mouthful. Um, but we're at uh, GoFAR on Twitter. Um, uh, we have a, another program called Ask, Listen, Learn, that, which is a, a free course for schools to use all about um, alcohol and the developing brain. Um, and so we're going to be pushing things out with our partners on some of these different uh, platforms just to get people thinking about alcohol responsibility, not just even in, but especially in the time of COVID-19 when we've all got additional stress, frustration, and we're all living right on top of one another. I think it's a, it, now more than ever, it's important for us to be thinking about um, our mindsets and uh, the behaviors we're modeling for our kids. So, And if I put a cherry on top model. for that advice that you gave, there's something that most parents don't really acknowledge that whether it be sex, porn, alcohol, violence, addiction, guns, it's, there's mystery to all of those and kids will want to explore. And there's a fundamental truth to every one of those categories that if you don't become the first voice within their knowledge of understanding it, someone else will. And if you're okay outsourcing that, fine, but most likely that's not the, the, the voice or you're not gonna subscribe to what they're gonna sell. And it will already be too late by the time you realize that someone else already answered this question for your kids. The mystery is gone and they're already starting to use it. Absolutely right. Well, I appreciate Ben you coming on the podcast, and uh, I'm excited to get this out and hopefully bring even more dads home and understanding and just help change the narrative. And I'm excited to participate and and uh, help bring awareness to a responsibility.org. I'm more aware of what I have to do, and I just really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to talking with you more in the future. So thanks so much. That's a wrap. And thank you for listening to today's show. And I really hope you enjoyed it. The lifeblood of any new podcast are the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And you will help us get the message out to even more military veteran dads. As John Maxwell says, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. Dads, it's time to come home.